Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a journey of commercial discovery. The only show dedicated to the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, editor of innovationoz.com. We're uh, just a few days out from a federal election right now, and I'm talking to Labor's Shadow Industry and Innovation Minister, Ed Husick. Welcome, Ed. Is it really called Commercial Disco? It is called the Commercial Disco. Wow. It's, uh, I'm this so is... impressed with that name. I'm so impressed this... with the title. This is a reference to commercial discovery because everything we try and talk about on Innovation Oz, it's about, you know, we talk about research and academia and education and skills and all that stuff. But the end game, we lean towards the commercial side. How do we... Well, I, I, when I think back? of Innovation Oz, I think disco, so... Oh, well, there we go. Let's have a dance. All right, we're going to start with <laughs> Anthony Let's Albanese. Boogie. Let's do it. Anthony Albanese wants to lead a country that makes things. Mm-hmm. Now... The coalition, certainly in recent times, and recent times I mean the last couple of years through the, the pandemic, has put a big focus on manufacturing through the Modern Manufacturing Initiative. We've obviously seen through the campaign a lot of money going out the door towards manufacturing. So what's different with Labor? I think, and the listeners will have to permit me this because we are an election campaign, so I'm going to be partisan from the get-go. Yep, the coalition have definitely focused on manufacturing, manufacturing a slogan manufacturing activity in terms of trying to create the appearance that they're doing stuff. But if you announce a $1.5 billion manufacturing program, funding grants program in October of 2020, and you spend hardly any of it in 2020 and hardly any of it in 2021, and then put the bulk of the money out the door in the weeks leading to an election, really you're manufacturing, you're trying to manufacture a slogan. You're not really manufacturing outcomes. So that's been the big difference between us and them. We have made, having taken on board what other countries have done in setting up major co-investment funds, one, two, focusing what we want to do. We're not trying to do everything here. We're taking on board advice from different people about focusing on rebuilding capability or strengthening capability in key areas, being mindful to the experience internationally through the pandemic where there have been supply chain vulnerabilities and inability to get the things that people needed at the time they needed the most, plus geopolitics shaping industry policy in a way it really hasn't done for decades. What we have tried to do is respond to that. I mean, that's why we put the National Reconstruction Fund up. That's why Labor put up the Buy Australia plan with a particular focus on reforming government procurement, why we've looked at opening up opportunity, particularly for younger Australians with a fresh pair of eyes, twinning that with technology to problem solve the Startup Year initiative that we announced last year to create potentially 2,000 new firms through that platform. This is all designed to try and mobilise and replenish and rebuild capability in this country, particularly that necessary capability of manufacturing. Okay, look, I want to get into uh, the ins and outs of the National Reconstruction Fund in just a moment. But on the coalition performance so far, yes, better late than never, but they're targeting the money that I've seen going out the door. We've seen money for space, for food, for lithium processing, for batteries more generally, you know, which is not vastly different from what's being targeted by Labor. Are they targeting the right areas? Because you seem to be also targeting those areas. 
Yeah, but all this stuff, all those projects, late, 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 late. We, we went through the huge economic pressure exerted on us all through the course of the pandemic. They had a $1.5 billion program, plus all other, like, you know, if you look at space, for example, as well, and other type of initiatives, that all is there through the course of a pandemic. When did they apply it? They applied it not to get industry back on its feet, but to get themselves back into office. And again, I know a lot of people who are listening to this will go, well, why are you being you know, so political? Again, this is election time. You know, this is the time where you have to make a choice between which party is fair income about these things. And also, I express this as a genuine frustration. I mean, we didn't criticise them putting the $1.5 billion forward. You know, we saw some parallels to stuff we did previously. We were quite supportive of them doing it. But then they took a hell of a long time to put it into action and it would have been better to get industry back on its feet and the runways that are needed, the timeframes needed to get this stuff done, James, as you would well know and as the listeners would well know, this stuff doesn't turn on a dime using the American expression. You need to dedicate some focus on this and get things moving over a period of months and that just didn't happen. So, yeah, okay, they're focused on the areas that need to be, but it's the execution that is, is wanting point of view. We weren't in government to make those calls, but I tell you what, you know, I say this often and it's probably a, a downside for me, but I'm one of the most impatient people in the opposition and probably one of the most stubborn. But if I was in that position, I'd be pushing this stuff to happen way quicker because there was an imperative, an economic and industrial and national imperative to make that happen. Okay, look, let's move to the National Reconstruction Fund. That uh, was an announcement, a, a Labor announcement from Anthony Albanese and uh, yourself and Richard Miles, I think, but Last some year. time ago. So, so to be fair, the funds within that fund on critical technology, I think there's an advanced manufacturing fund, the medical technologies fund, mm -hmm. have only been announced in the last week. So that powder had been kept dry for that period mm. of time when presumably you knew that those were the areas you were jumping into. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been talking with people for quite some time. I was very keen on the medical manufacture, to be frank, and have been talking with stakeholders you know, since last year on this type of stuff about what would it do, what would we need, and the type of thinking there. And so the announcement we made, I mean, it's built off the bedrock of $1.5 in loans, equity guarantees through the National Reconstruction Fund, but layered over the top is this additional initiative of using the Buy Australia plan to have a separate industry plan, recognising government spends a heck of a lot on procuring uh, medical or related services and products. Well, how can we use that to help build industry capability? So we announced that as well yesterday, and that's taken a bit of time. But again, I would love to have announced this way sooner, to be completely frank with you. But, you know, you've got a lot of moving parts in election campaigns. You just do them when you can. That's the reality. And we have announced it, but a lot of thinking around that and critical technologies as well, because the reason we shape that fund up, and I've argued this within opposition, and I think it's an important discussion to have externally, the way the technology is being welded to economies now by our rivals, you know, the ones we're going to have to compete on the international stage with, I think increasingly economies will either be makers or takers. You know, you're either going to be making economic opportunity, products, service, et cetera, or you're going to be buying them from somewhere. And I want us, well, obviously, in a globalised economy, there will be a bit of taking, but I don't want us to limit our opportunities or our 
our ability to do things. And that's why I think we've I've been so edgy about the failure to get on board with AI over many years. I mean, we just wasted time and didn't apply money and we still have stuff that's not moving under the coalition. And I think when I look at emerging technologies like quantum, that will profoundly change technology and its application within the economy. We've got to get ready for this and we've got to have this bedrock of capital there for the firms that when they're ready to grow, they know that we're there. But importantly, and the biggest thing, and sorry, I know I'm yammering on a bit, James, but I get a bit worked up about it, as you know. But the, the other thing is too, we've got to send a signal, right? Government has got to send a signal. This is a national priority. And the, the thing I've been very heartened with is response from industry in the last few days ago, hallelujah, like there is an arm of politics, there is a group within politics that gets this and is prepared to back this significantly. Okay, let's uh, take a couple of those funds. So we're talking broadly about the National Reconstruction Fund, but specifically on the Critical Technologies Fund and the Advanced Manufacturing Fund. So they're kind of related, mm. I suppose. Equity grants and loans, how does it work? Can you flesh something out mm. on what the kind of proportion yeah. is and, and who's going to make these decisions and which sectors would you lean towards equity and which sectors would you lean towards loans or, or co-investment? Yeah. That, how's no, that no, 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 good question. So I think that's actually, I'm, I'm grateful you've asked that because it's important to give some context here. So if people are looking for a living, breathing example, James, they've got one and it's been very successful and it was a labour initiative under the last government, which was the Clean Energy Financing Corporation, where we set $10 billion aside to help on developing tech and initiatives that could improve the spread of renewable technology and reduce emissions and use industry know-how to make that happen. NRF is basically based off that. And similar with the CFC, it's got an independent board made up of smart people who will make the calls on the investments. We will not have a plethora of colour-coded spreadsheets that the decision-making is driven by political imperative as opposed to what will work. We're conscious that this is an off-budget investment. That means it doesn't sit and get accounted for in the budget. It's government funding that has to be replenished. It has to make a rate of return, right? The tolerances, the way the decisions will be made, the policies and procedures around all that will be effectively determined by that independent board, just like it does with the CEFC. There will be an investment mandate. So a lot of the funds that you're seeing within the investment mandate, there will be these sub-funds on critical technology, on advanced manufacture, the food and fibre 500 mil that we announced, the um, medical manufacture side, those will all sit within there. But there'll be a, still a huge amount of investment that can be made on other projects as well. We're just sending out some priorities that we are signalling as a Labor Party that we want to be pursued should we win on Saturday and where we're able to set up the NRF. So that's how that will be done. People will have to apply. They'll have to have a solid business case. They'll have to be able to determine or demonstrate a return. And that independent board will make those calls, James. It won't be politicians, as I said, determining on political benefit. Uh, how these investments get made, they'll be solid things for a longer-term future. Okay, look, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we, uh, we're skipping along. I want to move to industry growth centres. Well, it's a bit hard to tell, but the industry growth centre program has, I suppose, it, it gets mixed reports, but generally there's been some, some good stuff there. So will Labor ensure funding such that those 
current industry growth centres will continue or will you pick some that will continue to receive funding and others that won't and will be left fallow? What's the thinking on that? If I can, at a high level, just make this point. Uh, unlike the coalition way back when they came into office in 13, they just had this slash and burn, scorched earth approach to everything. They chucked out anything and were literally through the Commission of Audit process contemplating starting from scratch. And a lot of it I thought was politically motivated. That is, you know, whatever Labor put up, we'll cut out. I mean, the MMI, the one manufacturing initiative effectively reflected what we'd had in government when we were in power uh, back under, you know, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. So they slashed everything. Not if we are fortunate, if we are blessed to give to form government on Saturday, I can make this assurance. I'm not interested in replicating that. What I want us to do is the traditional approach on innovation. If it's working, let it keep working. But if you can improve it, do it. So with the industry growth centres, the intention is that they, they remain within the current funding envelope. One, we do want to check out because there have been government-initiated reports into their performance that the government's refused to release. Uh, and from what we can understand, the reports reflect favourably on the operation of the IGCs. And I'm surprised that a government that is so quick to pat itself on the back has refused to release those reports. And I can only think that there's an ideological reason as to why they didn't want it, that their preference was to kill off the IGCs. But again, if there's something that's working, let's Let's see what we can do to keep it going and if we can improve it and work that way and i've been impressed with some of them uh in terms of particularly the advanced manufacturing growth center has been a really important one and uh you know I, I don't want to race to just chuck stuff out for its own sake james okay i think you're talking about the acil allen report on those growth centers which i, I suppose mm -hmm. is actually mm -hmm. aging somewhat now uh <laughs> i haven't seen it Mm. Well, I've seen bits of it that were, were leaked, but uh, so have you seen that report? And what's no, uh, no, um, but presumably chasing it up, yeah, most definitely. And I'd want to get again, you know, I'm sort of cautious about counting chickens before they're well and truly hatched. But again, if we're in the position that we form government on uh, on Saturday or from Saturday, then I'd hope that we would be briefed on that. All right, you also announced. I think last week that you would support uh, batteries technology. Any other industries that need, you know, that kind of support? No, we, we haven't announced any, any other growth centres. We did want to have something like that to help build capability, SME capability in this space. That battery precinct is not our final word, not necessarily in the election. I'm not flagging that we'll make further announcements in the election. That was a sort of flagship initial step that we've taken and we were very keen because Gladstone, the activity that's occurring there, James, particularly around hydrogen, means that there's a lot happening on generation. We want it also to be something that sends a signal about the development of storage capability and manufacturing batteries onshore. Everyone's been scratching their heads for yonks saying, well, if we've got so many resources and we've got skilled people, why can't we do it? Why can't we manufacture batteries onshore? We want to have an answer to that question. And this is the first instalment, creating that battery manufacturing precinct, creating the IGC, which we call the Power in Australia one, mobilising some of the new energy apprenticeships, 10,000 nationally mooted, 2,000 would uh, be slated for Queensland for this, and also to do the longer term 
national strategy, battery manufacturing strategy, to determine what different states and territories can bring to the table and mobilising that. So it's a, the sort of four legs to this uh, that we've put forward and, yeah, seeing longer term what we can do. Okay. All right. Lots of big plans, lots of money mm. through the National Reconstruction Fund. Mm, mm. Can't do anything without skills. Where are we going to yeah. find people? Yeah, I think there's going to be a balancing act there, James. I Thanks for the difficult question. I think we do have a, a sort of big investment in terms of skills development and improving access to university and also I think the stuff that we've announced around TAFE, the 465,000 fee-free places, the investment in technological renewal within TAFE as well. We've got a funding platform to improve the technology, the actual equipment available within TAFE to modernise it and make sure it's current for what's being taught through TAFE. Because I think I've always been a strong believer, and I think you can go back you know, in our previous discussions, James, leading into other elections, that vocational education, I think, has a big part to play in the skills piece. But I think the other thing is too, we want to create a pathway for overseas talent to get here and to combine with local know-how because we're just not going to, in the timeframes that we've got, we're just not going to be able to necessarily, the runway, the development runway is long for development of local talent. Sure, we can move people around, but I think labour availability is tight domestically and so we're going to need to bring talent in. But our big difference has been to not have two things. One, that we're just relying on people in a temporary sense, in a temporary migration sense, as I've described it elsewhere. You know, we're not going to have just a guest worker mentality when it comes to overseas talent. The other thing is too, and the other motivation behind all the things we've announced, particularly in terms of critical technology and the fund that we announced the other week, James, was we want to stop the brain drain. We want people to know that there's going to be a sense of purpose here in Australia and that we want to hold on to that talent here. So there's that. So creating a permanent migration pathway, bringing in talent that we know will make a difference and holding on to the talent we've got and developing homegrown talent, that's the skills play right there and making sure that that uh, is followed through will be really critical. And the other thing that I regularly emphasise, either with colleagues or elsewhere, is even if we filled every single role locally, I'd still want us to have a pathway for overseas talent to get here. The reason is simple, and I think it's compelling. If someone's doing something smart in another part of the world that would enrich our own domestic knowledge base, we should be encouraging them to come here is, is important. And the other thing I want to do too is I want to send a shout out to Australians in other parts of the world to come back. And again, if we're sending the signal, particularly through the funds we've set up, that we want to have Australia at the forefront, my ambition is aggressive and we want to send the signal to Australians overseas, hey, now is the best time. You've got a government that's serious about this. We need you back on shore and there's good lifestyle reasons for you to come back as well, given what you've had to live through with the pandemic. There's also a compelling case to have those Australians still call Australia home and make it home. Okay, I've got a couple of other areas that I'm just conscious of time. I know uh, you probably want to get out there. Electioneering, startup sector. In 2015, everything was about startups, less so in the 2016 election and then 2019. It's sort of gone quiet. Is this startup sector, I mean, for want of a, a better way to, to term it, is it kind of mature enough that it's self-basting or we don't seem as focused on it as a discussion within industry policy? So I'm going to say that's the best, the best phrase I've ever heard 
in relation to the sector is self-basting. So you should trademark that as soon as you possibly get it. Once you're off this podcast, you trademark that. But I do think I'm going to make a number of points. One is you're right, the focus did come off post-2016 election, but it never came off with me. Again, if you don't mind me being a typical politician tooting my own horn, but I'm going to make this point. Like, I haven't been there just for the golden times when the sun was out. I was there at the darkest times, always advocating for early stage innovation. Because to the second point I wanted to make, because when you described it in terms of the maturation, James, I don't. I see it as dynamic. There are all different parts. There's early stage at some point leads to the SME, the scale-up phase, and then even greater growth. And as much as we rightly applaud some of the big names that have put us on the map internationally, the Atlassians, the Canvas and Co., the regular cohort that we point to, they had to start somewhere. So I do see the circularity, you know, that uh, having that, that growth continue, the dynamism needing to continue, really important. And that's why I've, I've always tried to find ways, either, like I said, you know, in terms of the Startup Year initiative we've put forward, is not just about a mechanistic response. It's about, again, signalling to the sector that they've got an important part to play in the broader business ecosystem, one. And two, our Buy Australia plan, and particularly procurement reform, giving a, a platform for startups to be able to show what they've got. There will be people listening to the podcast going, yeah, 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 we heard this before and they're right. And I understand the cynicism. But we are wanting to codify a few more things, set up a dedicated office, the the, um, Future Made in Australia office within finance, working with officials out of industry to make that a reality. And I think the biggest thing, if I may, if we can get it entrenched in the thinking that startups have got an important role to play, injecting that new perspective that, as I've said before, you know, fresh eyes, problem solving, applying technology for solutions, and that that is an entrenched part of the landscape. That's the biggest longer term thing, I think, achievement, legacy that is worth pursuing. Okay, so let's, uh, let's, I've got two other areas I wanted to cover. And this sort of is a tangent to the Made in Australia office and how that works. Digital transformation agency and the digital transformation agenda more generally across the government. So in relation to information technology, I mean, the DTA has, I don't think anyone would particularly argue with this, has probably struggled and it's bounced around and found it difficult to get traction. So how does a Labor government look at that? How does, given that the DTA looks after procurement in the IT space, how do you see that reform happening that would enable SMEs to get a better look in, but also those fresh eyes from startups to get Mm. on, on those contracts? You know, when um, Malcolm Turnbull announced the creation of the then DTO, we never, and again, you know this for a fact because you've been reporting on these things for a while in terms of our perspectives on this, James, but we we saw it as a good thing and that this gave an avenue to improve the development or the delivery of services to citizens, really important. But boy, it lost its new car smell real quick. And I mightn't have agreed with everything that the late Paul Shetler did, But, you know, when I talked with him and I appreciated the directions and I also appreciated the way that uh, the initial objective eventually contorted and wasn't living up to the initial flourish, I think there's just like a, how can I describe it, a sullen disappointment in where it's got to because it started with such promise and now it's kind of just 
diluted and faded into the background. And there are a lot of good people that work for the DTA and I don't want to take anything away from them because I reckon deep in there, in a lot of their hearts, beats a determination to apply technology to deliver better government service. So my comments are not reflected at them and those public servants that are genuinely trying to do that. It's the leadership and it's leadership within government where I think people have been let down. And so I do think there's an opportunity for us to look at what can be done. This largely sits in my colleague Bill Shorten's arena and he will have carriage for it. But I would point to another thing that we announced in terms of the 1.2 million tech jobs by 2030. The platform for that, increasing that for us is to develop an industry plan looking at ICT procurement within government and what we can do there. And I would want us in the development of that plan to talk and work broadly, not only with industry, but within government. And I imagine, again, if we are blessed with the opportunity to to form government, that uh, Bill and I in our respective places, and obviously there are decisions to be made by the leader about who occupies what portfolio, but you know, we're in that position, developing that industry plan, looking at the role of government procurement and more broadly about what we're doing in other related areas. We'd want to see what we could do on that because it's not just about applying the external smarts and building industry capability, but seeing the way that tech can improve the way that government operates. And again, rekindling that ambition that was there at the start when the DTO was created by Turnbull in in 15. There was a a good reason for it. It hasn't gone away. And if anything, I think the imperative has grown. At Innovation Oz, we've had a good look at uh, some of the, you know, the growth in the number and value of contracts that are going for particularly the big four consultants, but the other management consultancies as well. Through the pandemic, the growth has been staggering across the board. A couple of these companies have put on $100 million worth of business in a 12-month period. Like that's $100 million. It's hard to find enough warm bodies to to do much in this world, but $100 million worth of consulting is really quite extraordinary. So that's staggering growth. How's that good for the public service or how's that good for the operation of government? And, and what's your thinking on that? No, it's not good. In fact, it's awful, and it's replicating what's happening in other countries. And I mean, I look at what Mariana Mazzucato did in, in her book, Mission Economy, you know, where she reflected on this as well, where governments were relying increasingly on consultants to get stuff done that didn't necessarily pan out the way that they wanted or was as effective as they had anticipated in terms of outcome. And I think there is an issue about you know whether or not, and we've seen it, I'm been grateful that Innovation Oz has put a spotlight on this. The time and again, consultants brought in to do work, and it's not bagging our consultants. You know, if I can paraphrase, some of my best friends are consultants, but but I think even that. I mean, they've never said this, so I'm making a massive assumption here. But I even think within the consultancies, they'd be going, "Oh boy, at what point can this golden run continue?" And they would be doubting whether or not this is a good use of public dollars. Not that they would say that. But there is something to be said about building capability within the public sector to get this stuff done. There's also, I think, a genuine, you know, is this a self-serving model that if you run down the public sector, every time you've got a problem, the first thing you do is go to a consultant and it's continually reinforcing itself. There has to be some capability in the public sector on this. I do want us to use government procurement to drive some upskill as well internally and externally 
And I do want us to be able to get stuff done into, I mean, tied to your earlier question about digital transformation within government, you know, there will need to be some internal capability to drive that as well. I think this reflects the caps, the public service employment caps that the coalition have had for an ideological reason. And that's because they've capped that, they've then instantly had to go external. And the saving is, is an illusion. I mean, just because they're not hiring more public servants hasn't meant a saving to the Commonwealth. Quite to the contrary, you look at the explosion in, in amount of money that's gone out the door to pay for all these consultancies, it's been self-defeating. And it's meant that innovation capability within the public sector has been drained as a result. Okay, I'm going to finish up on this question, Ed. Thanks very much for your time today. So your first 100 days, should Labor win an election, should Labor form government? What does your first 100 days look like? I take it it's not going to involve going out and getting some consultants to have a look at what needs to be done. (laughs) Yeah, especially after the strength of my last answer, right? (laughs) Well, really, I mean, we've got a big agenda. So the first 100 days is really going to be occupied in, you know, shaping up the National Reconstruction Fund, who we get in to run that, the investment mandate that has to go and be established and the the supporting mechanisms to make that happen. What do we do in terms of Buy Australia and our plan, the setting up of the Future Made in Australia office and getting some of that stuff happening. I think I'm anticipating a big arm wrestle when it comes to the reticence that we've seen that's been encouraged by the coalition and not do some of this stuff and levering off some concern around free trade agreements, which I reckon is a, you know, using the American expression, a load of malarkey. Like if our trading partners, notably the Americans, can set up similar initiatives using government procurement to strengthen industry and deliver better outcomes domestically for them, and we've got a free trade agreement, why aren't we doing the same? And there's some sovereign capability in strategic areas where we do need to strengthen capabilities domestically. So NRF, Buy Australian, start the process on startup year. I want us to deliver on what we've committed to. We've got to get happening. We do have on all those three things that I've mentioned, a lot of work to get done. And that will be the focus. Then I'm determined that everything that we've announced through the course of the campaign, if we are in government and we're going to the next election, you know, people will see that we've delivered on those things. That's really important, I think. All right, that's you, Sick. Thanks for joining me on the Commercial Disco. All the best for Saturday. Good luck. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please go over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our recent stories on tech, innovation, and public policy. Or you can follow us on social media to ask us any questions or be a guest on the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.